If there's one principle that people in our day and age tend to universally praise, it's the idea of unity. It's the idea of, of unity. For instance, you might turn on the news tonight and hear with a very fearful tone that our country has never been more divided. Anybody heard that? You might listen to many business leaders who publicly say that they want to be bridge builders in our divided society. In the world of sports, you can look up the list of the most hated athletes of all, of all time, and you find on this list that the reason that these athletes are hated by society isn't because their, their lack of athletic skill or the results that they bring to their team. In fact, some of these athletes are the most successful athletes in the history of their sport, such as Barry Bonds or Terrell Owens or Randy Moss or Kobe Bryant or, or LeBron James. But when you dig into why they tend to be hated by society, they are all typically described as me-first types of guys. They aren't concerned primarily with team unity, but with their own aspirations, brands, or individual performance. See, God has revealed himself in such a way that even the most lost and godless societies deeply long for unity. It's true. Yet, in an ironic way, if you were to ask each of these societies to define what unity looked like, you would likely get a different perspective on what unity is Altogether, For instance, in a socialistic country like North Korea, unity looks like complete conformity to the state, both in thought pattern and outcome among the people with little to no variation. In a libertarian country like Sweden, you'll find that unity looks like allowing anyone to do what they want with very few restrictions. So while the idea of unity is prized in both societies, the practical ways in which their pursuit of unity plays out so vastly different that one might conclude that their definition of unity is different altogether. We can also turn to God's Word and, and see that unity is a, is a good, God-honoring pursuit. Psalm 133, it's, it's a song of ascent. It is a song that was to be sung and meditated as the, as the Israelites uh, went to go worship together at the temple. In the first verse of, of Psalm 133, it says this. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. See, according to God's word, as God's people approach their time of corporate worship, their oneness or their unity should have been on the top of their mind as they gathered together. And as we, um, according to God's word, as we consider that this morning, as God's people, how much more should we, who are in Christ Jesus, through Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, have unity as we gather together each week? Yet, when we survey the evangelical landscape of the church in America, can we honestly say that it looks unified? Can we? We might look at one segment of evangel evangelicalism in America and the Southern Baptist Convention and see so much public division, discord, 
divisive speech and attitudes, slander, dishonesty, posturing, virtue signaling, and more, alongside valid concerns and criticisms that actually need to be addressed. And quite frankly, as as someone who graduated from a Southern Baptist seminary and has a heart for the SBC and happens to follow these things very closely, I can say that things have gotten a little hairy lately. At the very heart of denominations is supposed to be the idea and pursuit of unity. However, however, it currently looks like anything but unity coming out of the SBC. However, it can be easy for a church such as ours with, with no denominational network or, or local affiliation to, to cast stones at those other churches. You see, at times, it can be easy to think, thank God, we're not like those other churches. However, friends, if we're honest, disunity and disharmony and dysfunction are often every bit as present in our church as in any other church or denomination in our country. Yet, we all know that unity is something that we should pursue and should characterize our church. Amen? If we are to pursue unity, the question, the question we must be able to answer is, what actually unites us? What actually unites us? Practically speaking, what does it look like? What does unity look like? See, like the rest of society, we can be prone to have a general appreciation for the concept of unity, but a very diverse definition of the idea altogether. If we have a diverse definition of unity, we will have a a diverse pursuit of unity, and we will never live out who God has made us to be. So let's turn in our Bibles to Joshua. Joshua 1 this morning. We're going to be in verses 10 through 18, and as we study these verses, they might look a little bit obscure, they might seem to lack relevance to our lives on the surface, they might even seem like random details regarding Israel's journey into the promised land. However, as we dig in this morning, I believe these verses have quite a bit to tell us about unity. So let's dig into God's Word and see what He has called us to feast on this morning. Please follow along in your Bibles in Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 through 18, as I read this morning. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. My main point is this. 
True unity that is rooted in God's work, God's mission, and God's glory results in a corporate pursuit of holiness. True unity that is rooted in God's work, God's mission, and God's glory results in a corporate pursuit of holiness. This morning, I want to look at four principles that should shape Community Bible Church's views on unity. Four principles that should shape our views on on unity this morning. Point one, Christians have unity in light of God's work. Christians have unity in light of God's work. As we've discussed the past few weeks, in the first few verses of the book of Joshua, God was calling Joshua to take command of the people of Israel and lead them into the promised land. See in verse, you might see in verse 11, as Joshua calls the Israelites to obedience to go and possess the promised land, he reminds them of Yahweh's promise to them. He reminds them that God, that God is the one who is giving them a land to possess. It's vital that we understand that. See, it can be easy, friends, it can be easy to hop into the book of Joshua and miss the significance of God bringing his people into the promised land. The promise to give Israel a land to live in wasn't some new promise that, that God just happened to give this, this generation at the, book, at the beginning of the book of, of Joshua. It was a promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It was a promise that God in his sovereignty took several hundred years to fulfill. In fact, from Genesis 12 to the book, through the book of Joshua, this story of how God would make a nation from the offspring of Abraham to be his chosen people and bring them into a land he promised to give them is one of the main storylines of the first five books of the Bible. Yet, this promise of land isn't even what would primarily classify the nation of Israel. Said differently, their land isn't what would be the most important thing about them. The land was great, but it pointed to something so much bigger. While they were to be a people who dwelt in a designated land and worshipped in a designated land, their lives were primarily to be marked as people who were chosen and blessed by God. See, their identity was this, God's covenant chosen people. And this is, this is exactly what we read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. In, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Friends, the land was great. The land was great, but there wasn't anything particularly special about it from a geographical standpoint. In other words, God wasn't just giving Israel the best piece of geography on the planet. He wasn't giving them, like my favorite spots, like Glacier National Park or, or, or Yellowstone National Park. That, that, if, if that's, what would, that's what I would want. I've heard that Israel, I've never been there, but I've heard that Israel and the surrounding areas are beautiful. But the beauty of the land was secondary to God's main point for the land. It was in the land where God would continually bless his covenant people. It was in the land where God would demonstrate his love, his power, and his holiness through and among the Israelites. 
It was, it was in the land where God would do among the people of Israel something that he would not do in any other group in the entire world. It was only this select group of people who were marked off as God's covenant people. That is the significance of the land. See, from Genesis 12 onward, we see, that, we see what God would do in building the nation through Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. We see Jacob's 12 sons being brought into Egypt to protect them from famine in the land, thereby preserving the seed of Abraham. We see, we see the Jewish people suffer as slaves in Egypt, but we also see God multiply them in the midst of their slavery. Ultimately, Yahweh, he, he shows his power and stays true to his promise by delivering them out of Egypt and revealing himself to Israel and even leading the people of Israel. Through the prophet Moses, friends, God, would reveal his character through the law to Israel. Even as Israel doesn't trust God to, to do what God said he would do, God remains faithful to his covenant people. He loves them. He forgives them. He provides for them. He never leaves them, and, and he preserves their line. And now God was bringing them into the land that he promised to give them for the continued purpose of blessing them. You see, the, the Israelites, friends, they weren't united in the fact that they were a faithful nation. They weren't. They weren't united in their strength or intellect. They weren't united in even bloodline. They weren't united in cultural interest or stage of life. As they were entering into the promised land, their unity was found in the providence, love, and work of God in their lives. Their unity was found in God's pursuit of them, not their pursuit of God. Their unity was found in God's faithfulness in their lives, not their faithfulness. Their unity was found in God demonstrating his power and might to the nation in spite of their weakness and frailty. Their unity was found in God's promises, God's work, God's providence, and God's sovereign choice. God's giving them the land was just a small picture of what unified them. The land pointed to God's work in choosing these people as his own. In the same way, this is where the church's unity is rooted today as well. Our unity is based upon our identity, which is based on the finished work of Christ on our behalf. When we truly understand what the church is, we truly understand how incredible Christ's work is. God has taken people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue, and he has made them one in Christ Jesus. He has done it. It's truly incredible. We could go to the most remote jungle in Central Africa and find people that don't look like us, think like us, dress like us, eat like us, raise their children like us, play the same sports as us, or don't enjoy the same things that we do. They don't have the same economic fiscal policies we have. They don't have the same clothing style or even at times the same hygiene habits that we do. In fact, when you really think about it, friends, these people all over the world, we really have nothing earthly in common at all. Yet, if these people are followers of Jesus, you have the most important thing in common, the one most important thing in common that could ever be said of you both, and it's this, that your sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. 
You are both literally in Christ, and that trumps any, any, any earthly differences that you may have. Of course, this isn't just true of, of individuals in Asia and Africa or, or South America. It is true of our local church as well. See, friends, look, look around the room and con- consider the, your brothers and sisters in Christ that you serve along, alongside here. The oldest baby boomer in the room who is in Christ has more in common with the youngest Gen Z Christian in this room than they have with their unbelieving friends they graduated high school with and stay in touch with to this very day. White millennials have more reason to be unified with their black brothers and sisters in Christ who walked in the civil rights marches than any Stanley mug filled with Berkey water drinking, organic and non-GMO eating, golden doodle owning, shiplap covering, Taylor Swift blaring, go-dogging, anti-vaxxing, homeschooling, selfie-taking, Tesla-driving, craft-brewing millennials that you're best friends with who aren't Christians. The gospel brings so much more unity than any of these other surface-level things. See, Ephesians 2.16 tells us that we have been reconciled to God and one body through the cross. That's where our unity is found, in Christ and his work. You see, the implications of this incredible truth aren't just, though, that we've been reconciled to God, although that is the greater blessing, but because we've been reconciled to God through Christ's atoning work on the cross, friends, we have been reconciled to one another as well. Therefore, for Christians, we can say that unity isn't simply something that we pursue. Understand that? This is important. Unity isn't just something that we pursue. Unity isn't something that we can create or conjure up. Unity is part of our identity in Christ. Unity is more of an indicative in the Christian life than it is an imperative. If you are in Christ, unity exists whether we always realize it or not. Unity and reconciliation exist because God sovereignly chose us for himself and saved us by sending Christ to make atonement for our sins. We are his people. He is our God. There is no truer unity in all of creation than the unity that exists between Christian brothers and sisters. And that's a fact. So, friends... Unity isn't something that we create. It is a truth that we live out. Our goal in pursuing unity is not to try and create unity, but to demonstrate the unity that already exists because of what God has done through Christ. So, as you consider your life in the church, do you view all of these other Christians as fellow heirs in Christ with you? Do you? Do you choose to let petty differences get in the way of your love for those whom Christ died and reconciled to himself? Are you guilty of the sin of partiality in the church as you pursue relationships with only people who are your same age, stage of life, skin color, interest, relationship status, or socioeconomic level of of success? See, if we're not careful, our lives can seek to rebuild the walls between each other that the cross of Christ has broken down. Instead, May we meditate on, pursue, and relate to one another in light of what Jesus Christ has done. He has done what we cannot do. 
Unity will only be manifested among us as much as we constantly consider Christ's work on the cross on our behalf. That is where true unity is found. Point two, Christians have unity in their mission. Christians have unity in their mission. In verses 10 and 11, we see that in light of God's choice to choose a people for himself, to bless them and to give them a land, Joshua commands the Israelites to obey Yahweh by faith by taking possession of the land that God was giving to them. See, at at this point in time, Israel was camped at Shittim, which is slightly northeast of the Dead Sea and and east of the Jordan River. If If you look at those maps in the In the back of your Bible, you can find these these cities and find exactly what we're talking about. See, God's plan for his people was to travel west from where they were currently camped, cross the Jordan River, and conquer the land of Canaan. Of course, from a a human standpoint, if if you know the history of, of what was happening here, this was no small mission. They were entering into the land of Canaan around the around 1400 BC. The Hittite kingdom was in a power struggle with the Mitannian Empire for control of the northern part of Canaan. And the Egyptians were were in control of many parts of the southern parts of Canaan. Dr. David Howard noted that the region was mostly a collection of small independent city-states that were loosely governed by these larger empires. However, one can't stress enough, for instance, how established and wealthy and powerful and successful the Hittites and the Egyptians were. See, To take a wandering nation like Israel and battle these long-established empires would take great faith in Yahweh. You can see why God was telling Joshua that he needed to have strength and courage and strength and courage and, and strength and courage to obey this mission that God was calling the Israelites to obey. However, I think that Joshua demonstrates here in verses 10 and 11, I think he demonstrates great leadership here. Great leadership. As soon as, as soon as God gives him his mission, he obeys. You see that? He gathers administrative officers and, and gives them instructions to inform the Israelites to prepare for their mission. In a few days' time, they would leave on their journey to cross the Jordan. Now, one, one might say, it doesn't sound like Joshua obeyed immediately because he waited several days before beginning the journey. However, When one considers how many people that were on this mission, it really is remarkable that they would begin their journey in just a few days' time. See, towards the end of the book of Numbers, in Numbers 26, Moses took a census of the Israelites who were able to go to war at that time. The census that was taken before Israel crossed the Jordan is the most accurate number we have to estimate how many Jews comprised the nation at the beginning of Joshua. In Numbers chapter 26, Israel had slightly over 600,000 men that could go to war on behalf of the nation. However, that number did not include women and children. So it is estimated that, that the true population of Israel at the time of Joshua, at the time of our text this morning, was roughly 2 million people. 2 million people. I can tell you as a Father of nine children, it is hard getting my nine children to hop into the van to go to church on time. Imagine getting 200 or 2 million people to pack up their things, their lives, and, and they're moving across the nation for war. 
See, practically speaking, communicating the plan to two million people in an age where they couldn't send text message updates or, or public broadcast was extremely challenging. However, in spite of the challenges, Joshua doesn't wait, does he? He doesn't wait until all of the people felt like they were ready. He doesn't take a poll or solicit ideas as to how they would best tackle crossing the Jordan. He simply trusted God and obeyed. His trust in God's promises was far greater than any fear he had that awaited them ahead of their journey. Now, one interesting point that I'd like to make is, is I'd want to point out this word command in verse 11. Joshua commanded the people to get ready to take possession of the land. In other words, Joshua didn't give the Israelites an option. Why? Because God had spoken. He had given his people their mission. If you were an Israelite, this is what you're doing. If you were God's chosen people, this is what you were going to do. Every person in that camp was to be about God's purpose of bringing the nation into the land. This is the mission. See, the Israelites, they had a unity of purpose. They had a unity of mission. It's in light of God's promises. God had promised them the land. Their mission was to go and take possession of it. God didn't go out and just obliterate the nations before them and invite them into an empty land. That wasn't God's purposes for them. By faith, they were to glorify God by trusting Him, walking in His ways, and watching as God made His glory known to the Israelites and the surrounding nations. Their participation in this mission wasn't to simply be passive, but active. God both invited the Israelites and commanded the Israelites to be active participants in the mission. Today, friends, the church is united in God's mission as well. In light of what God has promised, he commands us. Here, hear me. He commands us. If you're in Christ, he commands us to participate in his mission. In Matthew 16, as Jesus is talking with his disciples, he promises that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. I think about this promise a lot. In fact, when I'm discouraged the most in ministry, this is one of my go-to verses for strength and encouragement. Jesus, friends, has promised that he will build his church. It's a fact. Listen, he is the builder. He is sovereign over its building. He has the blueprint. He knows just how many souls he will bring into his church. He knows the name and date of the very last person who will be saved. In fact, before the foundation of the world, God had carefully chosen those that would be his. Jesus has promised that the gates of hell will in no way, shape, or form prevent, derail, hold back, or even delay Jesus from building his church. He, friends, has made a declaration. He has made a promise, and he is able to bring it to completion. Yet, in light of of Jesus' incredible promise, Jesus invites us and commands us, his church, to be a part of this mission. Isn't isn't that crazy? In Matthew 28, after Jesus rises from the dead, he, he informs his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. All authority. 
Because Jesus has been given all authority, he commands his disciples to go into all of the world and make disciples of Christ Jesus by baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. Friends, hear me. This is our mission. This is our mission. This is what Jesus is commanding his people to do. This, the Great Commission, is what Christians do. Our mission is to make disciples of every tribe, nation, and tongue, trusting that it is Jesus who does the work, Jesus who fulfills the promise. But he invites us to be a part of the mission. He commands us to be a part of the mission. This isn't an optional add-on for the Christian life, friends. Do you understand that? Making disciples is not for super-Christians. Making disciples is not just for the elders. Making disciples is what Christians do. So hear me, young people. Hear me, young people. Teenagers, high schools, college students. If you call yourself a Christian, this is God's will for your life. What a joy it is, young people, to do something so important, so lasting, so eternal. Parents of children, you know you're busy. This is God's will for your life. Older people, this is God's will for your life. Middle-aged people in the thick of your career, this is God's will for your life. First and foremost, it is this, to make disciples. And note, he hasn't given this responsibility to individual Christians. He has given this responsibility to the church, which means that we do this together. We do this together. We're called, we're all called to this work. In other words, mission, friends, should greatly unify us. It should. Isn't this how Paul encourages and exhorts the church at Philippi in Philippians 2.27? Paul's desire was that they would have a reputation of what? You remember? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. What does that sound like? Sounds like unity to me. But what would they be striving side by side towards? the faith of the gospel. See, these Christians were to be unified in taking the gospel to those that need it. They weren't to be a bunch of Christians. Um, they weren't to be a bunch of Christians out on a bunch of individual missions, but to be a collective church together on a single mission, making disciples by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, do we understand our mission do we understand why our mission should, be, should result in a greater one-mindedness, a greater unity? It really should. I pray that we do. Yet there is a danger we must be aware of. Satan often loves to take truth and twist it and try and rob God of his glory and harm the church. Oftentimes, Satan attempts to, to take our mission and divide us. We must be aware of this. He doesn't divide us in whether or not we're called to make disciples. See, he's, he's, far, he's far too intelligent for that. Instead, he divides Christians and churches over discipleship and evangelistic and missions strategies. See, perhaps you're like me, and you've had seasons of your life where the disciple-making form is actually more important to you than the actual function of making true disciples of Jesus Christ. See, we can be tempted to think that evangelism has to look one specific way. Outreach has to look a certain way. 
Bible study within a church has to look one specific way. Oftentimes, if, if you're like me, we become very passionate about ways we've been ministered to in the past in various church contexts, or, or we encounter certain ministry strategies online from pastors we respect, or, or we read books by brilliant theologians highlighting how things are done in their church, and in our zeal, we try to duplicate their methods in our church. It's not a bad thing. not a bad thing. Yet, perhaps the rest of the church or church leadership doesn't share our same passion for the strategy. It can be easy to be bitter, to be critical, and begin to walk in an isolated and divisive way within the church. While there are certainly biblical elements that must be present in discipleship, must be present in evangelism, and must be present in missions, form and strategy can often be a matter of prudence, gifting, and divine opportunities. This doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a direction that a church should wholeheartedly embrace. It just means that it might not be the direction that most aligns with your personal preference. In such instances, we must remember that we are not united in personal preferences. We are united in mission. Mission. Point three. Christians have unity and their love of God's glory. Christians have unity and their love of God's glory. As we proceed to, to look at verses 12 through 15, we see what on the surface looks like a rather obscure exhortation to the Reubenites and the Gadites along with the half-tribe of Manasseh. Probably looking at that and thinking, what's, what is the point? What is, what is going on here? However, this is a rather important section to take note of involving Israel's past and is rel relevant for future study in, in the book of Joshua. You can circle this passage and you're going to see how it connects later on the book of Joshua if you're not familiar with the book of Joshua. But in order to fully understand what's going on in these verses, we must turn back to the book of Numbers, to Numbers chapter 32. I'm not going to read the whole long passages because we don't have time, but we're going to kind of be all over the place, so follow along with me. In Numbers chapter 31, Yahweh calls on the Israelites to take vengeance on the Midianites, who a few chapters earlier sent their wives to cause the Israelites to fall into idolatry. Therefore, God brings complete judgment on the, on the Midianites. The Lord uses the Israelites to kill all of their men and plunder their entire civilization. After this episode of violence and, and bloodshed, the Lord divides up the spoils of war among the tribes. Not only were there countless precious metals, but also over one million different types of livestock to divide among the tribes. You can go read all the details should you got time this week. This is where we pick up in Numbers chapter 32. In Numbers 32 verses 1 through 5, we read that the tribes of Reuben and Gad were wealthy in livestock. Likely, this was their main form of, of wealth at the time. As they stood peacefully in the land of Jazir and the, the land of Gilead, they thought that this would be a great land to maintain and to, and to raise their livestock. It wasn't necessarily a a selfish thing. They were just looking at the land like, this is, this is perfect for, for our current situation. But this land was east of the Jordan River. It was east of the Dead Sea. Of course, it was far east of the rest of the promised land that, that God was giving to Israel. However, it was well within the boundaries of the land Yahweh promised to give them. So, they took it upon themselves to ask Moses if they could forego the trip past the Jordan and into the land of Canaan as Israel took possession of the rest of the promised land. 
However, Moses, as they asked this question, did not initially take too kindly to their request to stay back. Now, there are, there are many aspects of this text that perplex me. We, as, we, as we discuss this text with the, with the preach team, we just, it's, it's, it's quite a, a perplexing passage of Scripture that brings about quite a few questions in my mind. See, I can find a variety of reasons why I would criticize the tribes of Gad and Reuben here. For instance, the land had not been divided amongst the tribes yet. The mission wasn't complete, and they had the nerve to go ahead and request their land right then and there before any of the other tribes. Seems like a selfish request, doesn't it? Yet, the request for this specific allotment of land isn't what makes Moses so angry. It's not. It's not the request for land. The request for land doesn't even make God angry. In fact, here's a spoiler alert, the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh all received the land they later that they request later on in the book of Joshua. They're going to get this land. That wasn't the problem. The reason Moses is angry with these two tribes is because of their lack of love and concern for their fellow Israelite brothers. That's the problem. We see this in, in verses 6 and 7 that say, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Now, we have reason to believe that the tribes of Reuben and Gad weren't fearful of what awaited them beyond the Jordan. They didn't seem to make the intentional decision to try and, and discourage their brothers. However, their heart posture was one in that moment that wasn't thinking, wasn't considering others. See the, see the problem there? Their hearts were overly concerned with self. They had no consideration for the other tribes, only the consideration for their individual situation. Their heart, it was consumed with, with what was the most benefit to their own interest in the moment. So Moses rebukes them and informs them that such a decision would do nothing but discourage the hearts of the rest of the nation from obeying the mission that God had for the Israelites. In fact, Moses compares their request to a much earlier scene from the book of Numbers in verses 8 through 15. And if you're familiar with the book of Numbers, you'll know the event Moses was referring to from Numbers chapter 13 and 14, where God commanded Moses to send spies into the land of Canaan to spy it out before they overtook it. And what happened? Well, the spies returned and they saw that the land was every bit as good as God had promised. However, their main point of emphasis wasn't how great the land was. Their main point of emphasis to the people of Israel and to the rest of the tribe was this, that the people in the land were far too mighty for them to ever overtake. They could never do it. Therefore, the people of Israel rebelled against Moses and plotted to find a new leader and head back to slavery in Egypt. Do you, I mean, you, want to, you just want to see the definition of, 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 of ignorance and stupidity. Please go read the book of Numbers, and, but read it humbly knowing that we're often not much better. See, however, the true problem of the spies wasn't this. It wasn't that they, they found the 
obstacles in the land of Canaan too great. That wasn't their main problem, was it? The problem is that they didn't find their God great enough. They exchanged the glory of God for lies. They took their eyes off of the God who had single-handedly just defeated the most powerful nation in the world at the time, Egypt. In their hearts and in their actions, they refused to give God the glory that he was due. That's their main problem. That was the heart of the Israelites in Numbers 13 and 14. That was the heart of the spies. And now that is the same heart that Moses is accusing the tribes of Gad and Reuben of having in Numbers chapter 32. Friends, do you see the danger of self-absorption? Do you see the danger? Friends, it manifests itself in so many ways. And we must acknowledge that the root of self-absorption is a refusal to see, treasure, and worship God and give Him the glory that He is due. That's the root of self-absorption. is not giving God the glory that He is due. In such seasons, we neglect to fear Him, honor Him, and love Him. See, self-absorption, it seeks the benefits of God without any desire for God. In such seasons, we don't praise God but desire to be praised by man. We don't pursue God, but want the external recognition of being used by God. We don't find joy in God, but expect God to give us joy in everything in this world without knowing Him. Another way that a lack of love of the glory of God manifests itself is in a lack of love and concern for others. Of course, we never admit that, However, when we ignore the glory of God, we replace it with something. And it is always self-glory every time. Every time. And self-glory always ignores the good of our neighbor. Self-glory is guilty of neglect, undue criticism, abuse, manipulation, among other sinful ways we treat our neighbors at times. See, self-glory always puts the self First, it is always concerned first and foremost with getting what the self wants. And this is really at the heart of how the tribes of Gad and Reuben acted. They completely neglected to consider how their actions would negatively affect the rest of the tribes. Why? Because they were far too concerned with their own financial situation. They were far too concerned with their own families. They were far too concerned with their own reward. In other words, friends, they were only concerned with their own glory, not the glory of God. They didn't care if the rest of the nation received their land because they didn't truly care if God's name and renown as a testimony to the people of Israel and the surrounding unbelieving nations occurred. They just wanted their land. So they cared about. However, in light of their initial sinful requests, As Moses rebukes them, God is gracious, as you read, in granting them repentance. In Numbers 32, 16 through 27, the men of the tribes of Reuben and Gad commit to cross the Jordan, fight in battle, and and take possession of the whole land until every last Israelite received their portion. At that point, Moses informs the tribes that if they took up arms and fought, they would receive the land as a possession afterwards. 
Yet, at this point, Moses doesn't appeal to their concern for the Israelites, but he appeals to the glory of God. See, Moses describes them as taking up arms before the Lord, passing over the Jordan before the Lord, subduing the land before the Lord, and that their obligation was to the Lord. You go back and read it in in, in Numbers 32. Even as they received the land, their possession would be received what? Before the Lord. What's the point? Even more important than their brothers receiving the land was God receiving his glory in the land. Ultimately, when the whole nation had a heart to pursue the glory of God rather than their own glory, it always resulted in unity and blessing among the nation. When they would be blinded by self-glory, it always resulted in disunity and sinful strife. You see that time and time again in the Old Testament. Therefore, Moses made a decree that the tribes of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh would receive their land after fulfilling their commitment. Which brings us back to Joshua 1, 12 through 15. Back in our primary text, we see Joshua He commanded the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the tribe of Manasseh to honor their commitment to the Lord. He's calling them to honor a commitment that they made back in the book of Numbers. That's all that's happening. Their families and goods could stay in the land, but the men of valor would pass over the Jordan and go to war. After the Lord gave rest to the nation as a whole, and God fulfilled his promise to the nation, they could return to the land God was giving them. Ultimately, They would care about the good of their brothers because they cared about the glory of God. So, how does this interesting story apply to us today? I think the biggest principle that we could take away from this this section of of our texts is that our pursuit of the glory of God isn't just about us and God. We've said it a thousand times before, but it isn't just about you and Jesus, friends. We live out our walks with Christ together corporately in the context of a local church. Now, if that is true, it is important to know that our lives, our decisions, our attitudes, and our choices, they affect other people in the church. We must be aware that that we are usually either agents of great encouragement to others, or we are agents of great discouragement to others. When we encourage others, it often results in the furthering of the mission of the church, the building, the building up and sanctification of God's people, and the unity of the body. When we discourage others, it stifles participation in discipleship making, brings about isolation and bitterness within the body, and creates unnecessary disunity within the body. Now, we can't walk, and I'm not calling you to walk on pins and needles, always worrying if you're discouraging somebody. I'm not talking about put a burden on you. There are certainly people in the church that you can never please. However, it is good to ask ourselves this. Am I taking other people into account in the way that I live my life? Am I taking other people into account in the way that I live my life? Am I taking other people into account in the way that I minister in the church? Am I taking into consideration how my participation in the life of the church affects the body as a whole? Am I taking into consideration how my attitude affects others in the church as a whole? Am I taking into consideration how choosing to leave the church 
or pursue different ministry opportunities outside of the church affects the church as a whole? Am I taking into consideration how taking on greater roles at work, on the ball field, or at the gym might affect the church as a whole? I'm not saying, friends, that this church must dictate your whole life. We're not living in some cult here. Don't don't overemphasize what I'm saying. I'm simply asking you, as you make decisions, do you take into account anyone other than yourself and your individual family with the decisions that you make in your life? Oftentimes, even when we're doing ministry or other important things in life, we fall into self-absorption and self-glory. If we have a church full of such people, we will never truly live out the unity that we have in Christ. We must, must, must be a people who are hungry for the glory of God alone. We must be a people who hunger for his glory. We will will be a people who joyfully love others and pursue their good and their sanctification to the glory of God alone when we pursue God's glory alone. And nothing, nothing can be more unifying in a church than having corporate hearts that truly desire God's glory. Point four. Christian unity results in a pursuit of holiness. Christian unity results in a pursuit of holiness. Notice as Joshua addresses the nation as a whole, as well as the two and a half tribes specifically, the people overwhelmingly respond positively to Joshua's commands. As Joshua reminds the people of their identity as people of the promise, reminds them of their mission and and, and calls for them to pursue the glory of God alone, in one voice they pursue obedience. They promised to obey Joshua and all he commanded. However, we must remember that in this context, to obey Joshua was essentially to obey the voice of Yahweh himself. What was God asking what was God asking Joshua and the, and the Israelites? Well, you might recall from last week, and, and, and Dave kind of already brought it up this, week, uh, this morning, that God was calling them to obey the law and not to turn from it to the right or the left. That was what they were called to do. And obeying Joshua, if Joshua was to lead the people according to the word of God, that means that he wasn't leading on his wisdom, he wasn't leading on his intellect, he wasn't leading on his vision, I mean, Joshua would only call them to do what God would reveal to him through his word. This would be their pursuit. This would be what they obey. And the Israelites knew this. That is why they said, Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. See, this is this was probably the most encouraging thing that they could say to their new leader. This is the most encouraging. Not, hey, you're such a great leader. You're so enthusiastic. We really like you. No. Only may the Lord be with you. See, they were reminding Joshua that the fate of the nation wasn't in Joshua's hands, but in the power of Yahweh. What was this all-powerful God calling them to do through Joshua? Obey his word. Therefore, in verse 18, they said, whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. See, as the Israelites stood there unified, they stood committed to pursue holiness as a nation at all costs. Whoever, whoever disobeys, we will put to death. To, to stand ready, to li- they would stand ready to literally put friends 
and family members to death should they begin to lead the nation astray through disobedience to God's commands. That's not God's will for us to put anyone to death today. However, I want us to see how serious at this time in Israel's history that they were taking obedience to God's word as a result of their unity. That's what I want us to see. You see, we might be tempted to think that this type of, that the type of unity that, brings, that God brings to his people is simply a type of bliss experience where we simply get along and don't fight. That might be your definition of unity. No conflict, we just don't fight. And truth be told, friends, it doesn't take the Holy Spirit for that to exist among God's people. You can go to any CrossFit gym, Boy Scout group, or Little League baseball team if you want to find people who get along, enjoy being around each other, and don't have knockdown fights. That is a completely secular idea of unity. The type of unity God brings to his covenant people results in his people collectively desiring to walk together in holiness. That's unity. They don't ignore their differences, but they have a commitment to continually be conformed to Christ. They don't ignore conflict, but pursue forgiveness and reconciliation that the Bible calls us to pursue. They don't turn a blind eye to sin, but practice loving church discipline to the glory of God, the good of their brother, and the testimony of the church. God doesn't grant us unity for unity's sake. Our unity is unto something greater. God receiving glory and obedience of his saints. So friends, as we close, we must understand that unity is so important to our Lord Jesus. It is. It is part of why he died. In fact, one of the last things that Jesus prayed before his crucifixion is that what? It would be one. We'd be unified. This was on his mind as he was about to bear the weight of our sin. Yet Jesus had a specific type of unity in mind. It wasn't some superficial type of unity that the world has. It was only the type of unity that God can bring. It would be the type of unity that would give God alone the glory. That's the type of unity Christ had in mind. And this is exactly what he has done, friends. He has unified us through the cross of Christ. He has, he has given us a unifying purpose in the Great Commission. He has given us united hearts as we live for the glory of God alone. The result of such unity is that we should collectively pursue the holiness of the church because it honors the one that unifies us. The question is, church, will we walk in reality of what God has done? Will we? Will our church paint a picture of what God-honoring unity looks like? Will we glory in the gospel? Will we obey the mission? Will we desire God's glory alone? Will we repent of our sins and seek holiness in our church? Friends, this is what biblical unity looks like. May we be obedient to God's desire for his church. Amen.